James chapter 4. James chapter 4. And what I'm finding is that this is an incredible plan of God for us to have the doctrine of repentance as our theme as we're going right into the Lord's table at the conclusion of our service to really celebrate what we have just heard from his word. Follow as I read James chapter 4 verses 7 through 10. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves, therefore, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. We're looking at the theme of repentance, repenting. This is the essential discipline and grace of the Christian's life. This is part of not just what we learn about from Scripture, but what we experience and should experience ongoingly as a believer, where we come to terms with what we've done wrong against a holy God as a believer, and we enter into God's presence being honest and sincere and wide open about what we've done, relying completely upon the blood of Jesus Christ and saying, Lord, please forgive me once again. We're not earning anything by doing this. We're not through our duty or efforts or works making ourselves right with God. We are instead leaning upon the gospel of God's grace that shed upon us. At salvation. It was that beginning point where we first repented, where we were sealed in God's fellowship. That's the basis for which we ongoingly repent as sons and daughters adopted into God's family. We are constantly reconciling ourselves to God who loves us. And by way of review, it just starts with in verse 1 finding that the source of our sins and quarrels and fighting both externally and internally, that that source is really us. We redefine our enemies as ourself, and we say, listen, Lord, we've made you an enemy. We're our own worst enemy. And so we're making that statement as a step in ending our wars that we struggle in in our lives. And secondly, in verses 5 and 6 of this text, we find that God is lovingly, as a shepherd, as a lover of our souls pursuing us and longing for us to be wooed back into a right relationship with him. And then we come to verses 7 through 10, which are steps in repentance. We looked at a few of those last week, steps in repentance. And sort of as a a part two to what we started last week, I want to ask and answer a question, and that's this. Have you ever considered the difference between genuine, authentic, spirit-wrought repentance versus false repentance, worldly sorrow, being sorry that you got caught, feeling bad and guilty for what you've done wrong, having some strong sense of regret over what you've done, but it not really being 
transformational in your life. It's like you, you look at it and you go, there's nothing real or substantive to this because I'm just going right back to doing the things that I've always done. I'm continuing to sin. There's no life change. And there's a difference in those two scenarios, aren't there? There's a godly repentance that God works in your heart where you do a 180, and then there's this sort of worldly sorrow that unbelievers have and nurse all the time, and then believers can even experience. And I want to talk about that difference and how we can know the difference between the two, because that's really important for your spiritual growth and your spiritual life. Let me just define repentance biblically for us again from a word. It's, it's the Greek word metanoia, which is the changing of your mind or the changing of how you think about your own sin and how you think about God. And it's a change that the Spirit initiates in your heart as a gift of God's grace to you. And it's a change that you are acting upon, where you are owning what you've done wrong and you're willing to do a 180. And like John the Baptist, when he rebuked the Pharisees and said, listen, you're a brood of vipers, you're going through the motions, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And, and when you have genuine repentance, you actually do see the fruit of the Spirit coming out of your life. And you actually do change. Have you ever repented of a pattern in your life? And you're not perfect on that score, but, but you see change in your life and there's a difference. That's genuine repentance. That's genuinely God's work in your life where you're confessing, you're owning it, but God's working in it. You're working out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's the both and. It's a shared act. First Thessalonians 1.9, Paul said to the Thessalonians, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. All right, just by way of review, this will give us a running start into phases three and four. Let's look at phase one again. Phase one is verse seven. It's to yield. It's to yield. It's where we say, okay, I'm going now to recognize and come under God's lordship with this sin. It's like signing up for the army. I talked about George Washington and how he said, listen, if people defect from the army, they're going to be shot. It's coming in to, to God's command. And look at verse seven, submit yourselves therefore to God. And then followed on with that, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So it's a submit and resist. It's your command to submit And then there's also God's commitment to cause the devil to flee from you. Talked a little bit about spiritual warfare last time. We are not only submitting to God with our sin, but we are being tempted and tantalized by an enemy. Do I need to bring up to you again that there's an enemy who wants to tempt your flesh to rebel against God? He's a real enemy. Here it's him called the devil, he's also called Satan, which both allude to and kind of mean that he is the accuser. He's accusing us before God day and night. Revelation chapter 12 verse 12 talks about how Satan is defeated by God through the cross of Jesus Christ, but he ongoingly accuses you against God saying, listen, this person is worthless and he wants us to believe it. He wants us to believe that there's no hope, that we can't repent. And if we listen to him, then our flesh 
can be involved in that and we can sin against God in hopelessness and despair instead of acting in faith. Martin Luther, he was strongly emphasizing the fact that you need to be bold in your faith. He would say bold statements that would sort of blow your mind from the pulpit. He would say, look, you need to sin boldly. I mean, what does that mean? That sounds just like blasphemy. But what Luther was saying is, look, we can't be so concerned under morbid introspection on everything that we're doing so much that we become bound up in the Christian life. You can't be so afraid of the devil, in other words, that you're not going to go for it. And he would say, look, go for it. Go for it in the Christian life. And if, if you sin, then repent and confess and get that right with God. But go for it in the Christian life. And the devil's out there, and he's a roaring lion, and he's, a, he's coming after you. But remember, he's a defeated foe. And Genesis 3.15 talks about how the serpent's head would be crushed. And guess what? It was crushed, and he did fall like lightning. And greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So we remember all these things, and we're able to say, I'm going to now resist the devil. Resist doesn't mean run. It means to stand firm and hold your ground, just like Ephesians 6, we talked about last time, verses 10 and following. It's repeated three or four times, the same verb, stand firm, stand firm, be bold, and live the Christian life boldly, boldly. That's what James is saying repentance is. It begins with this, a submission to God and a resistance with the promise that he's going to flee. And then number two is this idea. It is phase two, which is to move. Phase two is to move towards God. It's a beautiful promise that we find in Scripture where we are called to move towards God. Moving towards God in the Old Testament would be unheard of because God is holy and he, he would appear in the Old Testament as he did on Mount Sinai, giving the law of God. And people would be banned from even touching the base of the mountain because they would be consumed instantly by God's holiness. But here in the New Testament, we are given a promise where we have bold access to God. And James is saying, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That language should even be shocking to us. Just think about it. If you're willing to really do an evaluative work about how rebellious we are from day to day, it doesn't make logical sense that we could come with our rebellion and move towards God and his holiness and that God is going to move towards you. But that's exactly what he promises. We're commanded to move and then he's committed to move towards us. It's been said, the closer you get to the sun, the more flaws you'll see. On your own body. And it's true. And the closer we get to God's holiness, the more sin we see in our life. Have you noticed that as you grow as a Christian, instead of believing that you are sinning less and less, oftentimes as we grow, we see more sin in our lives and more and more is bubbling to the surface. We go, man, is this working out or not? But the promise that God moves towards us in this process is what we need to have confidence in the Christian life that things are okay. Luke chapter 15 is the picture and parable of that where the prodigal son saw his sin. He saw that he had spent his father's inheritance. He had basically, you know, completely done the most offensive thing he could do against his father. 
spending all of his life-earned money on lascivious living, on harlots and party living, and he was all the way down to the bottom of the food chain, basically as a slave serving in the pig yard, starving to death unless he was going to eat what the pigs were fed, going all against the Jewish custom. And he comes to his senses. This is repentance. He's, he's coming to his senses, Luke 15 says, in verse 20 it says, while he was still a long way off, the son was running back to his father, coming to his senses, realizing that even his father would take him back as his own servant and feed him. And as he was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Do you believe that this is your God? Your God will draw near to you as you draw near to him. And now phase three. Phase three is to change. We touched on this last week, but we're going to settle in here a little bit. This is beginning in the second half of verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The idea of being double-minded picks up on James 1.8. It says people who lack faith are double-minded. They're tossed to and fro. And he's saying, listen, as a believer, you need to come back to the single-minded devotion of Christ. There is one God. And you need to stop serving the world and God and serve God and him alone. That's Jesus' words in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he says, look, with temple language, he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts. Cleanse is Catharizzo. Cleanse your mindset from the world. In the Old Testament, the priests would have to wash their whole bodies and they would ceremonially wash their hands and then they would re-robe themselves with temple garments and a sash and a turban before they would ever begin to step towards the Holy of Holies. James is speaking specifically of a heart cleansing where you say, listen, I'm coming back to ground zero here and saying, I'm going back to the basics of the gospel and I'm going to say, Lord, I want to be right with you. I'm cleansing myself by the blood of Jesus Christ, recognizing that I only can have a cleansed conscience based on the cross. He says, purify your hearts. Be separate from the world. And then look at verse 9. Verse 9 is specifically talking about the idea of entering in to God's presence with a full recognition of how bad it really has gotten in your sin habits. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. This is pretty countercultural language here when you think about the self-esteem movement that says, listen, you need to be pumped up within yourself. James is saying instead, look, no, you need to see the offense that you've done before God and enter into that offense and own it. That's why we discipline our children. We don't want them just to go through lip service when they do wrong, when they offend little Tommy or little Joey or they offend the parent and they do something wrong, whether it's actual physical discipline or speaking words to a child, you want them to feel the weight and gravity of what they've done wrong. Why? Because you don't want them just to blow it off, to forget about it and not change. 
You want them to feel the weight of what they've done so that there can be the opportunity for change, right? Well, that's what the Lord is calling you and me to do. To see and feel and understand the gravity of what we've done wrong against the Lord. And, and listen, coming back to my original question where I was saying, look, do you ever consider the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow? It's very important that we do see that difference. Because you don't want to be duping yourself or telling yourself that you're making things right with God in a relationship with him when you're really not. And I think that the best place to understand this difference is found in these verses, but also if you'll turn over to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I want to show you where Paul lines this difference out, probably in the clearest way uh, possible that we find in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. If you'll remember, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he also wrote 2 Corinthians, but there in between those two letters is a letter called the severe letter. Now, that's not a letter that we have or or know about specifically, but it's the letter that he's alluding to in this passage. He wrote 1 Corinthians, and we know that there was division in the church, there was immorality in the church, there was all kinds of junk going on, and he confronted them somewhat, but I think that there was even a more severe rebuke that Paul is saying that the church was responding to. And in 2 Corinthians 7, he appeals to them very pastorally, trying to comfort them because he's found that they actually repented. Verse 2, he says, make room in your hearts for us. Then look at verse 8. He says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Paul is very pastorally saying to the church, listen, I know I wrote you a very, very severe letter. I wrote something that got underneath your skin all the way to your heart. And I'm I'm saddened that you are grieving over that, that I caused that grief in your life. But on the other hand, I'm not sad because what it produced in you was a godly sorrow to the point at which you would repent and turn from your sin. Isn't it so often the case that when somebody is prepared by the Spirit of God, to repent, that when you talk to them about something, you might not even be meaning to confront them, but you're just talking about the Lord or you're talking about Christian growth or you're teaching them something, that when someone is softened, they're just so open to what you're saying that they're going to gush and repent in front of you. And it was just effortless because it's what the Lord was doing in that person's heart. But on the other hand, when there's worldly sorrow, there can be great resistance. And a person can actually really pick on the process more than think about what you're bringing up in their life. You ever had someone accuse the process? Look, you know, the way that you're coming across right now, I I just don't like it. You know, you might be right on on 45% of this, but, but the rest of it, you're dead wrong. And I don't like your tone. I don't like the tie that you're wearing. 
when you're confronting me. Or, you know, that was a joke. But anyway, I, you know, I, I don't like the atmosphere. I don't like the room that we're sitting in. You chose the wrong coffee shop to talk to me about this issue. And people accuse the process because they're not warmly disposed to repenting. That's the difference between godly grief and worldly grief. Look at verse 10. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. If you're just sorry that you got caught, oftentimes your heart will get harder and you'll be more distanced from God if you're just experiencing superficial guilt, as opposed to a godly grief where your heart is opening up to what the Lord is doing in your life. I am always amazed at how much joy floods into my life when I experience genuine repentance. And by contrast, how much suffering I've experienced, and I'm sure you have, when you fight against the Spirit's promptings for you to turn away from a certain sin. Right? It's the difference between godly and worldly. Look at the attributes of godly repentance. The descriptions here are very strong in verse 11. This is what it looks like to have godly grief. For we see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. Listen to this. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. That's pretty strong. This is not accusing the process of how someone confronted you or it's not saying that, you know, something came across too harsh or, or not clear enough. This is a person who says, you know what, wait, I get it, I see it, I've sinned, I've blown it, I'm owning it. The Spirit of God has brought you to me to bring this up. The Word of God is, is absolutely putting its finger on me and I am ready to vindicate the whole matter. Is there restitution that needs to be made? I'm going to do it. Are there people I need to talk about, about how I've hurt them with my sin? I'm going to do it. I'm going to talk to my family, have a family meeting. We're going to talk about the sin that I've been involved in. Please forgive me. Getting things right with your spouse. Honey, I know I've done this privately, but it's, it's affected you publicly. And so now I'm going to talk to you about it. It's this kind of zeal, this earnestness, this Zacchaeus-like repentance. I'm going to pay back threefold, right? Because I have done wrong. It's a, it's a vindicating of wrong. And it reminds me of C.H. Spurgeon where he said, Your repentance, when your repentance is more notorious than your sin, then it is genuine. Or Martin Luther where he said, To do so no more is truest, is the truest repentance. It's where you're, you're willing to deal with what you've done. Well, there's no greater example of what we find in 2 Corinthians 7 than what we find in two people whose lives seem to parallel each other so much and then in the end absolutely are contrasted. And that is the life of the Apostle Peter versus the life of Judas Iscariot. So turn in your Bibles back to Matthew 26. This will lead us right into our communion time. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew documents for us along with Luke and Mark and John, but specifically the synoptics 
clearly what is going on between Peter and his falling down and his sins and then his repentance versus Judas Iscariot, his falling down, his falling away, and his non-repentance. It's a clear story here between the two. If you look at verse 14 of Matthew 26, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. From that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So Judas was on his way, ready, already actively pursuing betrayal of Jesus Christ. He had negotiated with the chief priest and made a deal with the devil against the Messiah. Now look down at verse 21. The Passover was taking place, and as they, the disciples and Jesus, were eating, he said, truly... I say to you, one of you will betray me. Judas is in the room at that point, and they were very sorrowful. All the disciples were and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish will uh, dish with me will betray me. You know what Jesus is exposing here? He's exposing the fact that all of the disciples are are sitting there and and sort of in introspection mode. They're, they're, they're exposed for their own sins and they're, they're concerned with their own spiritual condition before the Lord. So much so that they're not really looking at the obvious um, focus being on Judas Iscariot. They actually trusted Judas because he was the guy that was the treasurer. He was probably the most trusted disciple of them all because he held the money. You know, I think oftentimes we picture Judas Iscariot as having horns or a dark halo over his head as portrayed in some artwork, right? But really, Judas just looked like everybody else. And everybody's going, is it I? Is it, is it going to be me? Because I want to do some damage control real quick. And then Judas Iscariot already feeling bad for what he was doing. Verse 25, he says, is it I, Rabbi? And Jesus said, you have said so. And Jesus had just said, it would have been better for you not to have been born. The son of perdition. But then you come back to focusing on Peter. Look at verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So they were leaving the Passover scene in the upper room. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep Of the flock will be scattered, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. I just couldn't help but think, first hour when I read that verse, pride comes before the fall. He's saying, he's isolating himself, saying, look, they're all going to fall, but even if they all do, I will never fall. And I will even, verse 35, die with you. And all the others were echoing in saying, yeah, I'll die with you too, no matter what. Verse 34, though, is where Jesus said, before the rooster crows, you, Peter, will deny me three times. Having already said to Peter, listen, Satan has come to me. And wants to sift you like wheat. This is spiritual warfare and it's moral 
whether or not Peter is going to stand up for Christ or not. And we know that he denies him three times. So the hour was at hand. They had prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 46, Jesus says, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Judas comes in with um, his great crowd of uh, people with swords and clubs, probably part of the Roman guard and the chief priests and elders. And the betrayer goes up as a sign and kisses Jesus's face and says, greetings, rabbi. And then verse 50, Jesus says, friend, do what you came to do. Verse 56 talks about how all the disciples flee, and yet Peter, verse 58, was following him at a distance. So he's following at a distance, and then as Jesus is brought in before the council to be tried, to be put to death, you have Peter who's inching closer and closer and closer to watch, but also to protect himself. Verse 69 you have the three denials right here. Peter was sitting outside the, in the courtyard. A servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean, but he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. That's a significant little piece in the verse because it's showing that Peter is sinking deeper and deeper. It's not just three denials on par with each other. He denies it and says, no, you're crazy. And then secondly, it's like he's swearing in a courtroom with his right hand on the Bible saying, listen, I promise I'm making a swear oath that I was never with Jesus. You see, there's, there's a deeper level of, of denial here and blindness spiritually and then finally verse 74 and then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear i do not know the man and immediately the rooster crowed the third denial that came by peter when more bystanders put the pressure on him to confess that he was part of jesus's following the third denial is where Peter's saying, look, I will put a self-imposed curse on myself that if I'm not telling the truth, I need to be damned or cursed. That's how severe these denials were. That's how low people can sink in their sin. Which the fact that Peter was given grace to repent should give us some hope. Three Strong denials, the rooster crows, and then in Luke 22, 61 and 62, there's a dramatic detail that I want to point out. Luke 22, 61, and the Lord turned, this is right after the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is the beginning of genuine repentance. Peter remembered. Remember, it's a changing of your mindset. This is a spiritual moment in Peter's life where there's going to be a change, where he goes, I'm going to yield I need to come under God's command, and I'm going to weep bitterly. And I'm not sure yet if he's in the step of moving towards the Lord, but, but he's yielding. And, and then 
turning, which is, which is to weep and mourn over your sins, right? He's entering into the level of what he's done spiritually. What about Judas? Look at verse 3 of chapter 27. Two men living in parallel. Now, let me just say this before we get to Judas's final decision here. Judas Iscariot lived with Jesus, was the most respected apostle, at least in terms of respected enough to carry the money. He performed miracles with Jesus, as Luke chapter 10, verses 9 and 17 would talk about how he would have been one of the 72 sent out to to prophesy, to cast demons out to perform miracles, so he saw and experienced the power of God even flowing through him. And yet this was a man who was not genuinely in the fold. He was not a genuine repenter. It says in verse 3 of Matthew 27, And when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I think the reason I'm bringing up the idea that he actually performed miracles and heard the teachings of Christ and he he saw the power of God in front of him. And then it says he actually felt the guilt of what he had done. He realized that, that he had sold out an innocent man to be, to be killed. And, and then he changed his mind. It's a different word than metanoia here. This word in the original language can mean that you just severely regretted what you did. This is worldly sorrow. It's a severe regret. And he's taking the 30 pieces of silver into the temple. And he's trying to, to make it right through his action, through his, his deeds. He wants to make restitution. So there's a lot of things going on here emotionally. Practically, but it's not genuine repentance. Look what happens. He changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders saying, I have sinned. He's even owning it on a level. He says, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. Superficial guilt. Guilt that's pressure coming down on a person's conscience for what they've done, where they are not relying in and resting in and seeking refuge in the gospel. Not their own works, but the gospel alone can kill a person. And I don't know if you know this or or have experienced what I have, I'm sure you probably have, but I've known people who have taken their own life based on the guilt of what they've done wrong. I mean, several scenarios come to mind. Guilt that's not dealt with in the gospel can kill a person. It's crushing. It will, it will mess up a person's physical life. It, it, it's rottenness to the bones, the scripture says. It's the weight of sin that David talked about experiencing in Psalm 32, where his body cried out like a a wounded animal, the wailing and hurt of a crushed spirit, where he didn't feel the weight lifted in the gospel. And that's what Judas Iscariot went through, and he condemned himself 
by hanging himself. The chief priests, they also shared in this guilt. It's so interesting. In verse 6, but the chief priests taking the pieces of silver said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. They even knew that this was wrong. And they didn't put it in their treasury and say, oh, well, we're just going to keep the money now. Good for us. No, they couldn't even keep it. It felt contaminated to them. So they bought a field called the field of blood where bodies were buried. A potter's field, a place for strangers, a place for people who were anonymous. And they bought that field and put it out there as a symbol of getting that money away from them because it's guilt money and I I don't want to deal with it. That's the false guilt that's worldly sorrow that's so different than godly sorrow. And so that's why I'm thankful for the fact that God grants the gift of repentance. Let me just show you this. Mark 16 is where we see the beginnings of the release for Peter as he was forgiven. Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and the two women, the two Marys, come to anoint his body in the tomb with spices. And verse 6 is where an angel is speaking to them because Jesus was not there. And the angel said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples. So one place in scripture that scripture does this, but I love it. Go tell his disciples and Peter. That's God's messenger. To those women, through those women, to Peter. Hey, tell Peter, who's weeping bitterly, Jesus died but rose again for him. Godly sorrow, godly repentance is a supernatural work that's based on the cross work of Christ. And God wanted Peter to know quickly that he was forgiven. And every one of us, if we were honest with ourselves, would say, I was Judas Iscariot, and then God made me Peter. And I still am a sinner, but I experienced God's grace. And based on the fact that Jesus is risen again, hey, go tell the disciples and go tell me. Because I've been forgiven. Right? Isn't that your testimony? It's a testimony of grace. It says, go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Well, let's fly back to James 4 for the last point in repentance. The last step. We yield to God in submission and resisting the devil. We move towards God and he moves towards us. And then we turn our thinking towards laughter that turns to mourning. We were mocking our sins, and then verse 9 says it turns to mourning and our joy turns to gloom. And then verse 10, here's the blanket promise that wraps up all of what's been talked about about repentance. These 10 imperatives are brought into one imperative. Humble yourself, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This promise is repeated over and over again. I don't have time to go through all of them, but Psalm 25, 9, Psalm 147, 6, 
Isaiah 66, 2. Psalm 147, 6. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Matthew 23, 12. Jesus rebuking the Pharisees. He says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Quickly, let me insert. Some of you might say, I don't want exaltation. I know my sin and I just want to get into heaven. And let me just tell you, if you're concerned about being exalted, you're missing the point of this promise. The point of the promise is this. You will be one day exonerated of your sin. We're already in a no condemnation status. We're already justified. But one day there'll be an official stamp of approval Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of my master. You're you're receiving the crown of eternal life and you're exonerated from your sin. But you know what you'll be and I'll be? We're a trophy of God's grace. It's not about us. We are going to mirror reflect back to Jesus Christ, the glory due his name for sacrificing himself for us. We're going to worship and give glory and honor to the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundations of of the world. Glory to God. And we'll be there, but our exalted status will be a position to reflect God's glory back to him. I was reading about the great evangelist George Whitfield this week. I just want to give you a story of one of the people that was affected by his preaching. George Whitfield was a great man of God. He, he was in company with John Wesley and Charles Wesley, part of the Holy Club in Oxford in the 1700s. He basically worked in the kitchen to put himself through school, but was a brilliant guy. He would preach such a hard gospel that they kind of kicked him out of the churches, and then he began to open-air preach in the fields. He preached to the coal miners early on, and they would come out of the coal mines with blackened faces where, they would, where tears of repentance would roll down their cheeks and create white streaks that represented genuine repentance hearing the gospel. Well, there was a man named Robert... Robinson, who wanted to mock God with his buddies as a teenager, and he basically, with his friends, got hopped up on gin, drinking gin, and actually got an old lady fortune teller drunk. And she began to give this man, Robert Robinson, his fortune and said, You'll one day live to an old age and you'll have children, grandchildren, and great grandchildren. Instead of that being a joy to this man's heart, it was kind of something that struck fear in his heart because he realized that, look, there's no social security, there's no welfare system. The only way I'm going to be taken care of in my old age is if these kids like me. And the only way they're going to like me is if I can tell them great stories about things I've experienced. That's what's rolling around in this man's mind. And amazingly, God was using it because he said, I got to go hear the rock star speaker that everybody's going out to to hear, and I might go to mock him and sort of jeer at him, but I want to hear George Whitfield. So he went to this church in Moorfields in London and heard Whitfield. And Whitfield was rebuking the Pharisees and was sort of coming after them. And, and, you know, Robert is sitting there going, well, I don't care about that. I'm not a Pharisee. I'm not that bad. But all of a sudden, Whitfield just was overwhelmed by the gospel and overwhelmed by judgment. And he sort of buried his head and closed his eyes and then came up with tears in his face. And he said, oh, my hearers, the wrath to come, the wrath to come. And that stuck. It was a little seed that just went into 
Robert's heart, and he carried it with him for three years. And then he genuinely repented. It was genuine repentance. And he became a pastor, but he wrote a song based on that repentance, and you may have heard of it. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it. Mount of God's unchanging love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can enter into your presence boldly but humbly. Lord, I know that there are many sins that need to be confessed in and through this room because we're all still sinners. The sin in our life has been dethroned, but it still remains in us. And God, we come clean now as we move towards you in our communion service. I pray, God, that we would come clean with our sins and repent. Lord, we thank you for your grace that's found in the gospel alone. In Jesus' name, amen.